The following is a conversation with Annie Margarita Yang. Annie Margarita Yang is a definitive voice in millennial finance and specializes in strategies to beat today's tough economic conditions. She is also an award-winning author and author of the bestseller, The Five-Day Job Search, a book dedicated to helping young professionals get out of debt and find a job they love efficiently. And with over 1 million views on YouTube, her witty approach to tough talk sets her apart from others. Here is her story. So, Annie, a lot of people are drawn to college, even if it's not necessary for their career ambitions. Why do you think that is? I think that is because they don't necessarily know what they want to do with their lives just yet. So they listen to people who tell them, hey, even if you don't know what you want to do, you can go to college undeclared and figure that out. So a lot of people, they go into college undeclared. I think um, the, stat, the stat is 20% enter college undeclared. Mm-hmm. And But here's the thing. They don't realize, because no one warned them, that a lot of people change their majors as well, even if they do have a major declared. Mm-hmm. And that adds time to um, the cost, mm-hmm. cost and time to graduate. A lot of people don't finish college in four years. They actually finish in six. Mm-hmm. It's really unfortunate too. I remember when I was going into school, so I've had a very tumultuous career journey, which maybe we could get into later, uh, but the cost was definitely an implication. And I think, you know, the, what I did essentially was kind of go in undecided to kind of get into a business major, but that's another rabbit hole. Uh, but one of the things that they advertised to us a lot while we were there for a new student orientation was that a lot of people end up changing their majors. And when you're kind of this naive 17, 18 year old wanting to apply to colleges, you're like, I'm going to figure out what I want to do with my life. Only afterwards, you realize the significant financial implications of of what what that entails. Uh, So on that note, you know, a lot of people, uh, unfortunately, kind of a lot of us aren't able to kind of afford college outright, you know, for those of us that can't rely on kind of parents funding that have to take on debt for their education. What do you think are some of the things that people fail to consider when taking on debt for such a big burden? they don't realize that this debt follows them for the rest of their life. Like they don't, they don't even do the calculation. They don't look up what is the median salary for an entry-level job coming out of college for Mm -hmm. their field of study. And they have no concept of money. They don't know what like $50,000 in student loan debt really means. They don't know how long it takes to pay back. They don't do any research whatsoever. Uh, They don't know that a 10-year loan, which they think is taking 10 years to pay off, the average person actually takes 21 years to pay their student loans back. Mm -hmm. It's insane. It's wild. And you know what the government is doing nowadays? Well, you can't pay it off in 10 years. You can't get on that standard 10-year repayment schedule. Don't worry. We've got you covered. You don't make a lot of money. Well, you can pay just a portion of your income. It's, you know, pay as you earn or whatever. Mm -hmm. Just a portion of your income, it'll be affordable. But they also don't do the math. They don't think long-term and realize if you make less than the minimum payment that was on a 10-year term, Mm -hmm. interest accrues on interest accrues on interest. Unfortunately. So you get on that, that plan and 10 years later, you actually owe more than what you originally borrowed but the amount that you've paid back is almost as much as you've originally borrowed, but it all got applied to interest. Mm-hmm. And okay, well, now the Biden administration has come out with this plan. Okay, if you, if you do this for 25 years, then whatever the balance is at year 25, we will forgive that. You do the math. And with the average salary 
and the average loan balance and the average payment that someone's making on those kinds of plans, after 25 years, they have paid double what their original balance was. So if they their original balance was like $50,000, then they'll have paid back $100,000. Got it. I think- yeah, it's you, insane. You think, <laughs> no, it's a really, really good point. I think a lot of things that people fail to consider, especially with a lot of these government students, government student loan forgiveness programs, uh, is that there's always a cost for, you know, an additional additional duration of payment. So say if they're like, oh, it's okay, you know, you can pay it back another five years or 10 years. A lot of people think about that initial interest rate, let's just call it eight, 10%. Uh, unfortunately, but that, that may be too realistic given uh, the current economic climate. Uh, but I think a lot of people don't consider the fact that that interest will accrue over time. And the longer you don't pay it, the more interest you'll have to pay. Uh, so even if you do it over time, then that sum that you actually paid uh, is actually much more significant. So I think you make a really, really good point on that. Uh, on another note, regarding your specific story, so you grew up uh, similar to me as an immigrant in this country. So can you speak to a little bit about the challenges that you had to face growing up as an immigrant? Right. So I'm not an immigrant, but I'm a child of Chinese working class immigrants. So my family was the one that didn't have a lot of money. Um, my parents came here with only like $400 in their pocket. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, my dad also said that apparently... So they were separated for three years because my mom was waiting for a green card. When she finally came here to the United States, he didn't even have the money to take a taxi to the airport to pick her up. Mm -hmm. He took the bus to Newark Airport to pick mm -hmm. her up <laughs> with like flowers. And um, apparently because we don't have a lot of money, that was the only time in her life that he, she got flowers from my dad. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember growing up. It was so cold in our apartment because we had an apartment where the heat and hot water was included, but mm -hmm. the landlord had set the heat to the minimum um, allowed by law, which was like 60 degrees Fahrenheit in the winter. And I was just constantly freezing. My hands and feet were freezing all throughout growing up. And I vowed like one day I'm going to buy my own place and I'm just going to crank the heat up to whatever I want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... While I, I didn't have like that nice childhood, it gave me the determination to work really hard in my adulthood to be able to buy anything that I want. Mm -hmm. Were your parents, did they work another job before they immigrated to China or they kind of kept the same vocation throughout? My dad was a high school math teacher. Oh, awesome. And my mom was a farmer, basically like a laborer. So mm -hmm. everything was physical labor for her. She didn't even finish sixth grade education. Mm -hmm. um, coming here, my dad ended up working for the MTA and he fixed traffic lights. So it was like a completely different vocation because he cannot speak English. Therefore, he can. Well, he speaks English, but not well enough to teach math mm -hmm. at, at a school. Right. Um, and my mom in particular, of course, couldn't get a job right? because she lacks education in general. And so she was working at a clothing factory and, and getting paid 25 cents per piece of clothing mm -hmm. that she, she did. Um, but she's more like business oriented. So mm -hmm. my, my dad at some point, um, because he made more, my mom turned to my dad and said, hey, we always eat these, these bad vegetables. You know, you're, you're always making me buy these cheap vegetables. Can, can I get like just $100 to buy some nicer vegetables for us to eat? Because, you know, my mom's the one cooking. And my dad gave her $100. She came home with fewer vegetables because she had to pay more for it. And he was like, that's it. That's all you got. And she was upset. She didn't like it. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know what? I'm going to work my butt off. And I will never ask my husband for money ever again. 
So Got from it. that point on, she started a business. She started nail salons, ice cream shops, Chinese takeout. She sold water bottles on the streets of New York when it was mm. in the summer. She got like water bottles from Costco, the 24 pack, and she would sell them for a dollar each mm -hmm. intersection. She did anything she could to make money. She sold socks on the street as well. <laughs> Crazy. Um, but she, she vowed and, and she never did ever ask my dad for money ever again after that day. Wow, that's a beautiful story. That's the original immigrant grind. And it's funny, I, I think I saw a video on Instagram one time, someone went into Costco and bought a pie for I think $10 and then cut it up into four slices and then went to some farmer's market and sold it. It's like a $10 piece artisanal. artisanal oh my God. So this stuff works. It's all framing. But, wow. Um, beautiful kind of that your mother was able to do that. And a lot of uh, crazy immigrant stories I've heard of in the past before. So a little bit about my background. I think I probably mentioned this on previous shows before, but uh, my family is originally from Ukraine and my area has a lot of kind of Russian speaking people from Ukrainian descent. And a lot of people had advanced degrees back over in the, the former USSR. But then when they came here, you know, a lot of people didn't know English. Uh, so ultimately they had to take really kind of mediocre working class, really working class jobs, not out of, you know, their qualifications, but out of necessity uh, in hopes that their kids would kind of pursue and build a better life for themselves. So, a tremendous sacrifice and shout out to all of our parents out there. We know you guys went through a lot. Uh, you know, we all drive each other crazy, but we really appreciate you. Uh, so beautiful to hear about that. Uh, another thing that was interesting in your story is that you mentioned, or I saw in your book is that when you finished school, you didn't really know exactly what you wanted to do. So what did you, what steps did you take after school? Kind of as opposed to going university, as opposed to going to university. But when I was 16 years old to 20 years old, that was a time in my life when I decided not to go straight to university. And so in that four year period, I was like, well, what do I want to do? I couldn't figure it out. And my biggest fear was like, if I did go to college, what if my interest didn't lie in college? Like, what if there was something I'm interested in, but it's not actually in an academic setting? Because mm -hmm. all I've known my whole life was the academics, right? Um, so what I did was every Friday after school and after work, because after 18, I started working, mm -hmm. um, I went to the New York Public Library and I just went up and down the, the stacks, just like browsing the books and wondering, oh, oh, this looks interesting. Maybe mm -hmm. I like this. So anything and everything that I was interested in, I would just check those books out. I would like check out 10 books at a time and then go back and then check them out again. Um, and I would just read books on various subjects to see if there was something that stuck mm -hmm. like what if i read five books on yoga and then after five books i was like i'm bored you know then mm -hmm. then i would know okay if i can't even stick to reading five books on the subject then my career direction shouldn't go in this direction because i can't commit to it mm -hmm. <laughs> right and so there were a lot of topics that i picked up and then had to put back down and finally when i was 20 years old i looked back and i realized wait a minute all these years the one kind of book that I was reading over and over again was about money. <laughs> I, I would read money all the time and I never lost my interest. And I finally decided, you know what, if I can commit to reading all of this, then I think I can commit the rest of my life and my career to something money related. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to help people become financially independent while I'm on my own path to being financially independent, I decided that even when I was working minimum wage, I was like, you know what? People might think I'm not qualified. They might look down on me. I make a minimum wage. So therefore I can't give them financial advice, but hey, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. So long as my heart is there and I'm helping people and I'm serving people, one day I will find my way. 
Got it. I think that's a beautiful purpose and, you know, we'll get more to finding your purpose, but quick note on some of the jobs that you chose to do kind of after college instead of just pursuing kind of the college degree right away. What do you think some of the biggest lessons were that you learned in those roles, even though they weren't exactly what you wanted to be doing? Oh my gosh, that's a wonderful question. You're the first host that has asked me that. Right, so we, do, we do deep research here. We want, we want good questions on this podcast. We, All right. we, we aren't, this isn't a typical show, Annie. We're getting to the, the good stuff. Yeah, so I worked like at a, I worked as a cashier at Stop and Shop. Mm-hmm. And you would think, what kind of lesson can you learn working as a cashier? Well, um, doing that job, they always tested us on the PLU codes. Like, for example, a banana is 4011. Like an SKU, <laughs> basically, right? Huh? Like an SKU, basically, right? Like yeah, yeah, basically the it. SKU for produce, right? Mm-hmm. They always tested us on that to see if like, we memorized it. I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, they tested us to see if we knew our fruits and vegetables. Like, I couldn't tell the difference between cilantro, parsley, and basil. I couldn't tell the difference between a zucchini and a cucumber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I was doing a really bad job at that, uh, except the money part. I could do the money part. They also kept testing us on our speed. Like how many rings per minute can you do? And I was always slow. I did like less than 10 items per minute. Mm -hmm. And my coworkers are doing like minimum 17. So um, yeah, I felt like I was doing a really terrible job, even though I tried to put in my best effort. And so when I found a different job and I gave in my two weeks notice, the manager of the cashier department was like, no, 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 no. Please stay. Please stay. What can we do to make you stay? And then I was like, what? I don't understand. I thought I'd do a terrible job. I, I don't know my fruits and vegetables and I can't even ring that fast. And it turns out that people can't even show up to work on time. Mm-hmm. So I learned this valuable lesson. You got to show up to work on time. So while my coworkers did a better job than me at work, If they can't show up to work, what's the point, right? Because like my thinking was if I'm making $8 an hour, if I am even just 10 minutes late and I do that like for six days, that's one hour. That adds one hour of lost pay. Do that over four weeks, that's four hours of lost pay that I missed out on, that I could have gotten, right? So I always made sure to check, uh, to clock in exactly five minutes before I could start. And I always did that. And Apparently, showing up on time is actually far more valuable to the employer than being able to do the job better. I learned like little lessons like that at those minimum wage jobs. You know, you learn a lot working in jobs like this. So not to, I don't think my story was as uh, entertaining as yours, but uh, to be brief, I used to work as a host at Olive Garden. uh, Right. (laughs) And I didn't love the job, candidly, and I wasn't the best at it. We'll we'll put it there. (laughs) Uh, But something that I did that's really interesting to hear from you is I also try to clock in five to 10 minutes early. Uh, and it taught me two lessons. One, you know, a lot of stuff comes up. So if you have a five or 10 minute window, that gives you a bit of a buffer. If, you know, life throws some kind of small distraction at you. Uh, but also, even if you're not the best at it, you're showing up day in and day out. And it's really interesting to see that when you put, you know, your two week notice, what happened was your boss was like, you thought your boss would be like, okay, fine, we're, we're losing someone. But in reality, they're like, no, no, Annie, stay, stay. We really, uh, we really need you. But uh, it's an incredible lesson. I think that what a lot of people fail to realize, and especially these days when a lot of things are glorified on social media with a lot of things seemingly happening overnight, which uh, another metaphor that you mentioned that I'll get into later that I think you kind of know what I'm alluding to. Uh, but essentially what I think is really interesting about it is that it takes time and it takes effort. And a lot of times in these minimum wage jobs, people learn a lot of lessons. And while they may not be glorified from the outside, you really do learn a lot of really interesting and 
awesome career tips that I think will serve you better in the long run, as opposed to people who didn't, uh, who didn't have that. So really great to see that you found that. After, at some point, you finished kind of working these minimum wage jobs and you got a more sense of a purpose, which we understand now revolves in kind of money and finance. What, did, what practical steps did you start to take to fulfill that purpose to really help people alleviate their financial concerns and grow their wealth? Initially, uh, this is actually not in the five-day job search book. I share much of my story, but this part isn't. Um, initially, I didn't know what to do. I just mm -hmm. knew like, okay, Dave Ramsey is doing what I want to do. You know, mm -hmm. he didn't have a college degree in this, but somehow he's so famous. He has a radio talk show and he invites people on and he's giving financial advice over the air. Mm -hmm. um, how can I do what he's doing? But the thing is, he's also older. He's like at least 30 years older than me. Mm -hmm. So he's got years on me, right? But I don't know where to start. So what I did was I looked for resources. And one of those was I found out that he could, um, you could teach his class, like mm -hmm. you could play his DVD in front of a group class and you can help people like by holding them accountable. So what I did was I taught his class all the mm -hmm. way in Long Island. It took me two hours each way to get from Brooklyn to Long Island by train <laughs> just to teach this free class. Mm -hmm. I did that for nine weeks and then I helped, I did it only for one lady because I couldn't get a group. Only one person signed up for the class. But, mm -hmm. you know, the, there's a first thing for everything. And I treated that one as if she was like the most important woman in my life. And, and she was able to get her finances together. And then after that, I taught a second class. This time I had 10 people. So much better mm -hmm. and much closer to home. And, um, but after that, I couldn't figure out how is it that like people can position themselves to progress in their career because I tried to coach people one-on-one -on -one as well. Mm -hmm. And even though I was holding people's hands and calling them to make sure that they were doing their homework, I, I did like a five minute daily phone call to check mm -hmm. in and make sure that they, they track their expenses and everything, but they ghosted me after mm -hmm. three days, they got sick of me calling. So yeah, um, that wasn't working out. So finally I realized, you know what, there's a one rule in business that you always have to follow. It always applies to any business. Number one is the customer able to pay. Mm -hmm. And I realized that people with financial issues are not able to pay. That's why they have financial issues. Therefore, mm -hmm. the coaching model doesn't work. I cannot charge someone $100 an hour, let alone $20 an hour for financial advice because they're not able to pay, mm -hmm. right? Number two, if someone is able to pay, are they willing to pay? Right. So people who are able to pay, people who are making six figure incomes, the question is, are they willing to pay? And the answer is no, because they think they're rolling in so much money and making so much money that they don't need to pay someone for financial advice, that they think that they've got everything together, even if mm -hmm. they're living paycheck to paycheck on a six figure income. Mm -hmm. So I was like, that doesn't work. This business model doesn't work. Then I realized that's why Dave Ramsey does what he does. That's why he's not coaching one on one. I, I, finally got two and two together. I was like, that's why he's on air. He's writing books. He's like, he's found this low cost way that people can get information and help themselves without him helping people directly. And then I was like, I got to put together a YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. So that's how I came to, to do what I do. I put together a YouTube channel and now I have followers who listen to me. Mm -hmm. Got it. It's incredible. And I've taken a look at your YouTube channel and definitely a lot of uh, really insightful tips there. I'll include that in the description, but uh, Annie, I think you're well on your way to having uh, the Annie Yang show or Annie Margarita Yang show in the future. Personally, I think that has a better ring to it than Dave, than, uh, Dave Ramsey. So uh, 
We'll see. We'll see if he has a comment about that. But really awesome to see, and I'm sure you'll get there. And on that note, another thing that you kind of did that I thought was really audacious uh, regarding your story is that at some point you decided you wanted to work in accounting just to get some kind of financial experience, but you did so without a formal accounting degree. How are you able to do this when you know accounting jobs are really competitive and often seek the, the best and brightest from universities known for renowned accounting programs? There were two things that I did differently. One of them was that I wrote the book, 1001 Ways to Save Money. Mm -hmm. So uh, that book was just an easy three month project that I did because I went to this workshop called How to Publish a Book and Grow Rich. And they taught us this system on how to write a book and publish it in only 40 hours. And they basically said, when you call yourself an author and you have a book, nobody actually reads your book. <laughs> What you're going for is you want the fact that you can even call yourself an author because most people, even if like you give a talk or a presentation and they buy your book, they're not even going to crack open past 10 pages. Mm -hmm. So I'm betting on that, right? Well, mm -hmm. I have to write a good book, but I'm also betting that people aren't going to read this book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I wrote this book and I put it on my resume, author of 1001 Ways to Save Money. I put that right below the education line that said that I had a degree in communications instead of mm -hmm. accounting. And so that's what got me in the door because mm -hmm. people were more interested in the fact that I wrote a book than in my education. They thought, they thought like, wow, we've never met this, an author before. This is so intriguing, right? Mm -hmm. And the second thing that I think I did really well was the fact that I applied to 50 jobs a day. Like mm -hmm. I was like, you know, um, if I use this easy apply button on Indeed and ZipRecruiter, it only takes me like one minute for each so mm -hmm. if I apply to 50, you know, it's like a one hour job search per day, right? I, mm -hmm. I can bang that out in, in an hour per day. So I just kept doing that every day for a week. And then I got a job offer by the end of the week. Mm -hmm. I have found out that the average job seeker takes six months to, to get a job, mm -hmm. you know, like I'm helping someone right now. Like I literally fixed up his resume. It took me two hours and I said, great, you're good to go. Time for you to apply to 50 jobs a day. Come back to me in five days and, and let me know how many you've applied to. And he came back and he was only applying to four per day. And, and he's been unemployed for six months at this point. And he's mm -hmm. wondering why. And I said, well, because you're not applying to enough. Yeah. Got to definitely make the effort behind that. But really interesting and awesome to see that you were able to kind of get into that path through something that was different than a typical accounting approach. And really that they were able to kind of they took a chance and really got to know you and awesome that you were able to get that experience. And, you know, it looks like it's, it's paid its fruition for sure. And on the note of being an author, another thing that you wrote or another book that you wrote is a book called the five day job search with, I, which, you know, I've been fortunate enough to take a look at, and I might add beautifully written. Uh, I've read uh, kind of the first chapter and I think, you know, you do a really good job of, uh, of discussing the things that you need to discuss. I'll leave it at that for anyone else who wants to take a look. Um, but what was your big motivation behind writing that book? I didn't want to write this book. I wasn't interested in writing a second book because mm -hmm. this is too too much of a time-consuming project. I was lot. more interested in growing my accounting side business and turning that into a full-time thing. But I'm like really intuitive. I can hear voices in my head. I'm like clear audience kind of like that. Mm -hmm. And one night in November of last year, I just, I'm trying to sleep. It's 1 a.m. and I hear these voices telling me, Annie, you've got to write this book. 
and you have to put all of these different things in this book and they're just going on and on these are like at least 10 voices 10 different voices in my head telling me this and i was just like i'm not interested go find someone else to write this book mm -hmm. and they pushed back and they're like you're the only one who can write this book and even if someone else can write this book they're not going to put in the work to market sell and promote the book like you and we got to get this out there so you're going to do it and um, I was like, can you just stop bothering me? I'm like tossing and turning in bed, trying to sleep. And I couldn't, it would, my, my mind wouldn't shut down. It was like going around in circles. And mm -hmm. finally I just got up. I was like, okay, I'm just going to record into my iPhone, everything I'm hearing. And I did that for like the next 10 days. And that recording, I used AI to transcribe it. And that, that got turned into the manuscript. Got it. You know, I, what I think is so beautiful about what you said, apart from, you know, thank God we have an AI these days to uh, <laughs> make our lives much easier when, when we need to. Uh, so shout out to all the platforms doing that. But what I think is really beautiful about what you just said is that I'm going to say something a little general here, but I think you'll, you'll see where I'm going. A lot of people chase, you know, the dream of being financially free, essentially thinking that, oh, they won't have to work. They could do whatever they want when they want. Cause ultimately that's, that's how they see money means to an end. And, one of the things that you mentioned in your book, there was a line, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but it's a lot of people that chase that dream often don't end up financially free or end up uh, very monetarily wealthy in the end. Um, however, the people that do often do so by way of chasing what they feel is their purpose or what they feel is their passion. And when they do achieve a certain target or a level of financial freedom, you know, maybe someone takes a month or two off, you know, that let's be practical here. People sometimes want to break, want to kind of enjoy their lives for a bit. Um, but it's not something that they just decide to one day just drop everything. Uh, what they end up doing is maybe they'll have, like I mentioned, a br some brief time off, but they'll still end up pursuing and working on whatever that passion is, maybe not as much as many hours or before, but in some kind of capacity, they'll do what they feel like they're meant to do. And obviously, you know, it's a passion. People enjoy doing these things, but, you know, and I'm sure you can relate to this as well. Uh, there's some days that you wake up, you're like, okay, I just, today's just not a good day. I don't want to. But there's an inner voice in you that's almost like, you know, if this is what I was meant to do, regardless of the circumstances or the success that I've experienced, it's almost like you have an obligation or, you know, you feel like you're obligated to do this thing. So definitely really, really beautiful there. And I think a, a remarkable note. And on that note, actually, uh, there's a metaphor in your book, which I, I thought was incredible and beautiful, I might add as well, uh, about bamboo. So can you speak a little bit about, about what that is and kind of the illusion that people fail to see sometimes when it comes to success? Bamboo takes five years to grow. So mm. like while we're growing bamboo, we have to keep watering it and nurturing it. And nothing comes up from the ground, from the soil for five years. And you're just there wondering, is anything happening? And you feel tempted to like, you know, dig up the soil and see what's happening, which is going to kill the bamboo. Mm. <laughs> but you just have to keep watering it, even when you see that nothing is happening visibly to your eye. And then after five years, it shoots up from the ground and it grows like several meters per day. Mm -hmm. So it's the fastest growing plant in the world. But like, did it take five weeks to grow that tall or did it take five years? That's my question because people think there's like some sort of overnight success. Why is this person mm -hmm. so lucky? Why is this person like getting recognized suddenly? They're so lucky and they're just at the right place at the right time and, and everything. But no, this person has been hacking away for at least five years, most likely 10, 10 mm -hmm. years behind closed doors. You weren't watching them. Were you with them 24 seven watching them every second of their life? No. Right. Uh, they were always a success in the making. The difference is not that they were successful overnight. The difference is that 
you discovered them overnight. You just mm-hmm. never heard of them, but they were always there. Mm-hmm. And I think what's beautiful about that and the way I would pun intended metaphorize your metaphor is that, you know, don't pull out the bamboo, so you shouldn't kill your dreams. So um, keep watering, keep watering the bamboo. Don't pull it out uh, if you want a chance for your dreams to grow in the future, which I think I think is beautifully put. I can add more to that metaphor, plant more seeds as well, because you don't know which ones will grow and which don't. I think, uh, no, I think that's also a really fair point. And on that note, actually, um, regarding some of them growing, some of them not, you know, you mentioned earlier that a lot of people have trouble and, you know, neither of us uh, excluded finding their calling at times. What advice would you give to other people who are in that similar boat that you were in in the past when they're trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives or what kind of value they want to add to society? What should they do to really find out what their purpose is? Well, you can also try what I tried, which is like reading the different books, right? That works mm-hmm. because if you go on Amazon.com and you just scroll, like I had to actually physically go through the library, right? Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you can, <laughs> yeah, now you can actually just go on Amazon.com in the mm-hmm. comfort of your own home, even on your phone, right? Mm-hmm. And you can scroll through the different book categories. Amazon has 16,000 of them. Right? I didn't even know that. That's crazy. Yeah, I thought they had insane. like a hundred. I didn't. <laughs> no, no, no. It's sixteen thousand subcategories. Mm-hmm. So you can scroll through all of the different categories, and you can just write down the ones that seems most interesting to you. That's a good starting point. Like if you end up with like a list of ten, at least you've narrowed down like a whole bunch of different interests down to ten. Now mm-hmm. it's just time to figure out like which one you like enough that you want to stick to. Mm-hmm. So I, I recommend you do that. But another thing you can consider is like. Our society pushes specialization. Mm-hmm. It's like everyone who doesn't like want to specialize in one thing and do one thing for the rest of their life. We feel like we're put in a box or a straitjacket, and it's like, oh my god, if I can't commit to one thing and I'm just a jack of all trades instead, there must be something wrong with me. But what people don't realize is that this is actually only after the industrial revolution. Like prior to the industrial revolution, if you were someone who had many talents, you did art, you did science, you know. Um, you did music, right? You were actually like well-rounded and you were recognized for that. You had mm-hmm. many talents, right? And so it's just because we live in the modern day that we want specialization, but there is still a place in this world for someone who wants to generalize. Like Steve Jobs is a perfect example of someone who combined design with technology. If, if we didn't have Steve Jobs, we wouldn't have beautiful technology as we had because he had an eye for it he he had the that certain aesthetic right mm-hmm. so um so don't be afraid to also be interested in more than one thing and getting really good at it because like for me for example i am that generalist you cannot pin me down and force me to specialize right mm-hmm. like i i love piano i love finances i love public speaking like there are so many things that i like and you know what I just somehow managed to fit it all together. I cannot just work a nine to five job doing one thing for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I think it's a beautiful metaphor that you mentioned as well. I think, you know, personally, I don't think it's a necessarily the worst thing to specialize if that's really what someone wants to do with their lives. But I also think it's fair to acknowledge the people that, you know, specialize in something for five or 10 years, then they have some kind of intuition to do something else. So I think the big thing is there is, you know, chase, uh, chase what you really want to chase. And if at some point you feel like your dreams or aspirations change, uh, definitely uh, keep on keeping on to doing that. So really interesting note on that as well. And you mentioned that you have a lot of these really great and interesting passions that you're kind of working on. Um, But what would you want to give advice to for the next generation to, uh, you know, what would you, uh, what's your hope to inspire the next generation, whether it's to work, 
you know, specialize or not to specialize? What's the biggest thing that you hope to inspire in uh, millennials and Gen Z? My biggest thing is you have to have courage. You can't be on the fence for everything and like just stay at home wondering and thinking and ruminating and overthinking as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to like, my, my philosophy is like, you either want it or you don't. In my mm -hmm. head, there's no maybe. If it's just like a maybe, it's kind of more like a no, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're all in, your heart has to be in it, but you won't know that unless you try. So I don't sit around like waiting for passion to hit me, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm like, okay, do I like acting? Let me try an acting class and see if I like acting. Let me take a six-week acting class and um, see if there's something there. Right. Another thing that like recently picked my interest, which I don't have time for, but I know I'm going to put it down for maybe two years from now after I'm finished promoting all this book related stuff mm -hmm. is like, maybe I want to try modeling, which is crazy. Right. <laughs> but like, I also found out that Miss Universe has raised the age limit. Like prior to this year, um, you max age was 28. I'm 28 mm -hmm. years old now. So I'm like, oh, I don't qualify. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was also like a height requirement. They also removed that as well. So, so I'm like, wait a minute, all of a sudden I qualified to enter into Miss Universe. This is like something interesting, something totally different. Maybe mm -hmm. I want to go to modeling school two years from now. I'm not going to say no to myself. It's, it just seems interesting. I'm curious and I'm not afraid to try and see, mm -hmm. right? I, I'm not going to sit back, wait at home and go like, I wish I could do that, but, and then blah, 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 blah. I, I don't listen to those kinds of excuses in my head. Why do you think so many people, you know, even if they have their intuition, which on another note, you know, and, and I'm not advertising that I'm a scientist here, but I think there was a statistic that proved that 66% of the time or three out of four times our intuition is usually correct uh, or is the most fruitful uh, in decision making. But why do you think a lot of times people are hesitant to kind of go with their gut instinct regarding their career choices? Because we're always told that we cannot make money following our passion. And there is some truth in that. I agree. You know, the life life isn't so black and white, even though I like things to be black and white. There's more gray, right? Sure. So yeah, there are things that you cannot make money in it. But there there has to be a way. Like for mm -hmm. example, there's this story of um my friend's nephew. He liked fishing before he even went to college. He always went fishing. And then after he finished college, people were like, Hey, what do you want to do now that you're out? And then he goes, fishing and then they laughed at him they were like you can't make money in fishing like how are you gonna make money in fishing how are you going to like um financially sustain yourself through fishing well what did he end up doing he he sold fishing related products he started a fishing magazine like he started like this whole uh business uh, surrounding fishing and created multiple streams of revenue surrounding mm -hmm. fishing as well and this this man now is a self-made millionaire so I mean, you can't really tell people, look, if, if he only wanted to do fishing, like he's the one going out to sea and fishing it himself. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> you know, maybe you won't make that much money, but if he's like more entrepreneurial and he's starting something like a, a more systems oriented thing, like an actual business mm -hmm. where he's just running it at the top and hiring people below him. I mean, you can make money, right? It, it's more mm -hmm. about you have to think about how to make money. You can't just assume you cannot make money just because um, people conventionally haven't made money doing it. Like for example, mm -hmm. you can't make money in music. I mean, look at Taylor Swift. Oh, mm -hmm. she's different. She's special. My gosh, you know, she's a businesswoman. That's what she mm -hmm. really is. She's a businesswoman in music. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's a great point that you make there. I think a lot of times we'll have our niche or something that we're really interested in. Um, but because a lot of things are in the gray, it's tough to find exactly, you know, how we can monetize that. But I think if we think about the different paths or avenues we could take and, uh, no pun intended. Well, actually, yes, pun intended. But it seems like that guy was in selfish uh, when he when he created all of all of those things. Um, but you know, he really liked fishing, and then he thought about different avenues. So on one end, yes, some things directly may be tough to monetize. But if you really think about it through different avenues, you can pursue your passion in a variety of ways. And you know, definitely, it's incredible to see that happen with him, and incredible to see what's happening with you. Um, on another note, just regarding you know who you looked up to growing up. Do you think have been the biggest role models in your life regarding your career process thus far? Who do I think are the most important role models? Um, I, I'll tell you who it's not because I think really I'm not more I'm not really driven by who inspires me. I'm more driven mm -hmm. by who pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> so since you've read like the beginning parts of my book, you know my guidance counselor really pissed me off because. Yeah when I told her I wasn't going straight to college, like she wanted to make a whole project out of me because every Friday um, for one hour, she sat me down for two years to tell me that I was going to be a failure. I'm destined for failure. I'm going to be a loser. All sorts of things like just to, to insult me and, and put me down. And she even like tried to push different things. Like she's like, oh, you're interested in yoga. You can mm -hmm. get a college degree in yoga and take on $40,000 in student loan debt to finance it. And mm -hmm. I was like, what? That financially didn't make sense, but she thought mm -hmm. it was like a great idea. Um, so all these years, what I've done is I replayed her words in my head over and over and over again. And I just keep telling myself, I'm going to prove you wrong, Miss Garcia. I'm going to mm -hmm. prove you wrong. <laughs> Got it. If yeah. Miss Garcia was in front of you today, what do you think you would tell her? I would say, look at where I am now, Ms. Garcia. Do you think I'm not special still? Because I remember specifically uh, when I would like refute back her arguments, I was like, but what about Steve Jobs? What about Bill Gates? What about Mark Zuckerberg? These are people are like self-made, right? Mm -hmm. These are people who, who took a risk, who took a chance and they have success. They are household names today. And her response was, but they're, not, they're special, Annie. Those are a special kind of people. And you're not that. You're not special. Mm -hmm. and, and I will always remember those words. So if she sat in front of me today, I'd be like, am I special now? <laughs> that's, a, that's a beautiful line. I, I, love, I love that one liner. So, you know, hopefully uh, one day you'll, you'll get the chance to show her who made it. Uh, on another note, you know, other than your book, is there a book that you've read in your life that you feel has been instrumental to your development? There are so many books that I've read. I cannot name um one specific book because mm -hmm. what i do is the way i read i like to i read for practical reasons mm -hmm. so i read and then i take notes and then i read the next book i'm like okay some of this was already covered in the prior book from someone else what's mm -hmm. something new in this book that i haven't learned right so it's more like an accumulation of knowledge but i guess maybe for personal issues one that has changed my life which it's not related to business mm -hmm. is um it's called Anger, Wisdom mm -hmm. for Cooling the Flames by Thich Nhat Hanh. Because there was a point in my marriage in the first year when my husband and I, we fought a lot. And I was mm -hmm. getting like explosively angry to the point where he asked for a divorce. And I was like, no, no, no. I promise you I can change. I'm capable of change. I can get my anger under control. And he didn't believe me. And I said, just, just give me a couple months and I will figure out how to get my anger under control. Mm -hmm. 
So I bought this book from Thich Nhat Hanh. I read the book. I studied it. I read it every day. I followed the meditations. And um, every time I got angry, I would remember what he said. He said, think of your anger like a, a crying baby. Mm -hmm. Do you do you hit a crying baby? No. You nurture this crying baby and you tell the baby everything's going to be okay. I understand your suffering. I know you're in pain, but mama's here. Everything will be okay. So you treat your anger the same way, right? When you get angry, um, you don't explode like crazy. Instead, you go within, you say, okay, can I just walk away for an hour? You know, let's, let's stop the conversation here. I need to walk away for an hour, nurture my own anger and figure out why I'm angry. And then I'll come back more peaceful and ready to talk. Right? Mm -hmm. So I had to get that under control. And I think that has made a big difference because it saved my marriage. Got it. That's beautiful. So the yeah. big message there is, you know, and it's awesome that you were able to kind of really work on a personal situation. But whenever we're kind of going through something, try to take a step back and think of it a little more objectively. And as tough as it is, and it's definitely not easy. And I'm not perfect at this either. But try to objectively think about, you know, your emotions at times and really think about if it's if what your emotions are doing is rational or worth it, really. All right. Do you have a favorite quote from a book that you've read? There's no uh, favorite quote. I really just, I, I think of this motto. I'm sure you've heard of it. A lot of people yeah. have heard of it. It's called go big or go home. So yeah. that's really the motto I live by. That's why in the five-day job search, I'm telling people, you got to apply to 50 jobs per day. <laughs> if you don't apply to 50 a day, how do you expect to have success? I apply this to everything. Like, for example, I wanted to be able to call myself an award-winning author by mm -hmm. saying that the five-day job search won an award. But how do you become that? Well, I compiled a list of 50 book awards that independent authors are eligible to apply for. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm just going to apply to all of them. And mm -hmm. I'm just going to see like which ones I win because I don't mm -hmm. know which ones I'll win. I can't handpick which ones, right? Mm -hmm. If I just apply to all of them and pay $5,000 because each application is 100 bucks, um, then I'll, I'll find out at the very end if this works. And so um, actually this morning, I just got an email. I got finalists in one of them. So I've won awesome. two book awards, two book awards, and I got uh, finalists in two of them as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. So you're officially, I congratulate you on officially being an award-winning author, Annie, for sure. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. Um, if you could have dinner with anyone in history, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Dead or alive, anyone in history. Hmm. You, you guys might hate me for this. Maybe your audience would hate me for this. I, I'll try Sam Walton. <laughs> um, that's the founder of Walmart. Because mm -hmm. while we hate Walmart, this evil corporation today, Sam Walton mm -hmm. um, actually was serving people. He's actually a really smart businessman. Mm -hmm. The way he started his business, it actually started more like a convenience store. I mean, you wouldn't hate your neighborhood convenience store, would you? No, yep, yep. that's what he started it as. And then he managed to grow it. He he looks for products and locations that weren't being served by bigger companies. Like, for example, he deliberately chose more rural areas because he saw that they had a hard time getting products. They would have to drive so far out into closer to the city just to get products. So he chose locations that were like that, where people needed to get items. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, a very, very smart man. And so if I could have dinner with him, that'd be great. No, I think he, he's a good man. I think I'll put it this way. I think that he had positive intentions, uh, but I think by virtue of his positive intentions, that caused a lot of uh, mom and pop shops, not the best circumstances. So, um, you know, I think when people think of him, they shouldn't think of this kind of evil businessman. I think people should think of a great businessman, but 
you know, it's life that sometimes that that's what happens. That's the economy. And I think also a lot of people are probably envious about his kids and kind of the, the empire <laughs> that, that he's left them. But no, I think Sam Walton would be, would be a great choice. Uh, Annie, what would you say brings you the most happiness in life or how do you find happiness? There are two things that bring me happiness. One is my piano, mm -hmm. right? Like that's the one thing I have in my life that's not work related. So if I could just sit down and listen to piano or play the piano, I feel at peace. I'm like, oh, no one's here to bother me. <laughs> mm -hmm. But another thing is I feel happiness from serving others. It doesn't matter what kind of work I'm doing. Like even when I was working at Domino's Pizza, at first I was like, why am I working here? what a low paying job. I deserve mm -hmm. better, but I ended up here. Why? Um, but eventually I learned my own lesson there as well. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. So long as I'm serving people, I'm making a difference and it's an honest way to earn a living. Like it's not prostitution, right? Mm -hmm. Then it's fine. This is a good thing. And I actually felt happy and content working there because I am still making a difference. The people who are who are buying fast food or who who go to Olive Garden for dinner, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Why the do day. they go? Why do they eat out when they can save money, right? Well, why is because they're they're tired after a full day of work, after a full week of work on a Friday mm -hmm. night. Um, they need to feed their their kids and they need something quick, something affordable. So they order pizza from Domino's Pizza and those kids are happy to eat pizza. Like what kid doesn't mm -hmm. like pizza, right? Yeah. Like if, they're, if it's pizza night, they're excited. So um, we are bringing joy to people's lives in that way. So I saw myself as um, being of service and, and I felt happy doing that. I think it's a beautiful way to find happiness. Um, on that note, what would you want your legacy to be remembered as? I want to leave people with the most comprehensive and trusted financial advice. So mm -hmm. uh, the five-day job search is only the second of many. I actually plan on writing several books a year once mm -hmm. the promotion of this book is done. So we're going to write several books a year related to financial issues, such as like how to build your credit, how to save for the down payment of a house, how to buy your first house and what to avoid, how to mm -hmm. buy the right insurance, like all sorts of um books just like the dummy series the yellow dummy series that you mm -hmm. you know and love but uh instead it's going to be annie yang financial and when they walk into barnes and nobles or they're on amazon looking for a financial book and they see oh annie yang financial has covered this topic that i'm looking for a solution for they grab her mind first because they know that they can trust it got it well uh, wishing you the best of luck with that and many many more awards and awesome things that you've been up to and on a parting note, apart from everything else you just said, is there anything else that you think people should know? No, David, I think this was so much information and you've done so much research on me, surprisingly. I yep. think you've, you've, you've actually read portions of the book, whereas other people haven't. So great interview questions today. Thank you I, so much. I appreciate it. No, Ridden, really thank you so much, Annie, for taking the time to come on the show. It was awesome having you and I know you'll do great things going forward. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Annie Margarita Yang. If you enjoyed the episode, rate the show on Spotify, drop a comment on YouTube, and subscribe.